Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Thanks for being part of this first dinner with the stud. And uh, make yourself at home. And, uh, you know, if you don't know people at your table, say hello to everybody. Or just uh, going to try to have a good friendly little night here, man, and, uh, and uh, have a good time. So uh, and I want to thank all of you for coming, obviously, and I hope you're going to enjoy what we got in store for you. Now, we're going to be doing this uh, this one live. It'll be the first podcast I've ever done live. So, uh, and uh, don't be afraid. Don't be shy about making a little noise. If there's something you see you like, you want to clap, and uh, go right ahead, man. Uh, we're we're on TV, so uh, and the more the merrier, man. Let's just uh, let's just uh, let them know we're here. So, uh, yeah. after podcast is over, sometime around the end of the first hour here, uh, we're going to raffle off some door prizes. Seven of them to be exact, and really nice prizes. Y'all should have got pictures when you came in. You got your ticket there, and uh, we'll be doing that uh, immediately following the stud cast. And then we're going to start after that. We're going to have this question and answer session. Y'all can ask questions of any of the three of us. And, uh, and uh, you know, I uh, uh, hope you uh, notice we got two little cameras here. Uh, it's a lot different than the old days, right, Les? Right. It's not those four monitors at the TV station. You know, that's it. Uh, you know, and uh, try to avoid walking in front of them if you can. And uh, so, uh, not a whole lot of the rules here, I can tell you that. Uh, so, when you notice uh, that uh, we don't walk, uh, obviously, in front of those cameras. And sometime tomorrow, you're going to be able to see yourselves on YouTube. You won't be able to tonight because you're going to be on live. If you want to watch it back, to be able to see yourselves, a lot of you tomorrow, especially those that ask the questions later on. And, uh, you know, the studcast will be, the regular studcast will be on tomorrow if you don't uh, watch it on YouTube. And the question and answer part of the show tonight is going to be done separately. Uh, it, the, after this show is over, it'll disappear from YouTube tomorrow. This entire show will come back on YouTube sometime in the morning. It'll be there for good as part of the, all the YouTube stuff. So and, uh, then the, the uh, question and answer session is going to be probably a week later. It'll come on, and uh, those that ask questions or whatever are going to be able to see themselves again. So uh, hopefully, you know, less time than that, you know, uh, had the opportunity. I think we met pretty much everybody uh, on the way in, which is what we wanted to do. And... Uh, Really glad to have you all here. Uh, some of you come from a long, a long ways away, and if not, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> if we didn't shake hands with you uh, afterward, we'll be glad to do that. And we, if we have any time, we're going to be able to be here till after 9:15, so uh, we might have an opportunity to shake hands and have a little conversation with you again. And uh, so, uh, and, I, and I hope you don't mind me. I'm reading all this, guys, because there's a lot of stuff. <laughs> You know, and I don't want to forget because we're going to do a lot of historical things tonight. We're going to talk about stuff I wasn't aware of when I started doing the research about this particular stuff. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to I'm going to basically read it as much as I can. But uh, I'll every once in a while I'm going to throw it to Tom. I'll throw it to Les, and uh, we're going to we're going to all get involved in this stuff. So, uh, and uh, thank y'all all. This is kind of my way of giving back. I've been looking for something to do to give back to fans that have been so supportive of what I did. And this is kind of a, uh, it's a good start. I think uh, if we all have a good time tonight, we're actually going to be back next month uh, in November 24th, the night before Thanksgiving. 
we'll have another one. So, uh, so uh, as a last note before we get ready to gallop away here, man, I'd like to recognize the, the person here tonight that came from the greatest distance, furthest away here. And uh, his name is Clint. His name is Clint Gilroy. And uh, please stand up, Clint. Uh, Clint here. Clint is from Louisiana. So uh, he's made a long ride to be here. And, uh, and I, I'm talking to him a little bit. He had a great time to get here, too. Yes. So uh, it was a nice little journey for him. And uh, so, Clint, thank you so much for coming. Uh, and we've got people from Virginia. We've got people from all kinds of states in the Southeast that are here. And uh, thank all of y'all for being here. And uh, so, uh, uh, please welcome, uh, you know, uh, and, and Glenn, if you're an LSU fan, uh, you're real close to the wrong stadium just down the street. <laughs> you know, don't tell anybody, man, you're, if you're an LSU fan. <laughs> well, you're in trouble then. I hope you go out there and don't cut your tires like they used to do with the old restaurants. <laughs> So uh, this is Thomas Metcalf, number 220 guy, and it's a little different than the usual ones. And normally, you know, I have a host, it's David Summers, out of out of Dalton, uh, Alabama. Uh, but I've got two great guests with me today. They're going to back me up in case I get messed up. And uh, you know, uh, and historically, you know, we are in one of the greatest wrestling cities in parts of the country, and in the history of the sport, basically. That it's just amazing what kind of how long wrestling has been here and how successful it has been. And uh, you know, it's a it's, this is a these two guys are going to be an integral part of this podcast. Uh, they're going to be on later with me here, and uh, they're going to be telling stories too. So uh, thanks for Ken for coming. You know, I hope everybody you knows this. Saddle up. I hope you're all ready. Uh, uh, y'all can go eat anytime you want to. Uh, it's a one plate affair. You know, they tell me to let you know, but uh, it's a good plate. We've eaten already, and it's, it's, they're going to take care of it really well. And uh, so uh, just uh, go whenever you're ready at this point. You can start to, and uh, dive in, and uh, we're going to get this podcast going. And uh, everybody ready, man? Let's rap. So there's a, there's a whole lot of information in this subject, and, um, and I don't want to leave any time out, so basically it's really going to do this and get it from looking from the city of Texas, the information that I've got, and I'm going to be serious So, um, so Rustic Hospital, basically, it goes way, way back. Uh, it goes back to, actually, 1905, one of the very first days I was back in 1905. And uh, in, uh, in 1905, when they planned for one of their matches was almost exactly 91 years ago. 91 years ago, and uh, right here in Knoxville, the uh, world heavyweight champion, Jim Londis, on, on October the 31st, Halloween night, wrestled a guy out of Atlanta, Georgia, who became not just a tremendous wrestler, but a great promoter, Paul Jones for the World Championship in 1930 in this city. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a tremendous amount of history here. Uh, they wrestled in the Lyric Theater, and in that same Lyric Theater, my father wrestled there, uh, my, my grandfather wrestled there, his brothers heard and went to wrestle there, his parents, Jimmy, wrestled there a terrible time. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, so it's a big, big history here in this, in this part of the country. So um, uh, then after that uh, time frame, in the 1940s, two brothers got involved in wrestling here. Uh, they were the Kazana brothers. One was named John, the other was named George. And uh, those two guys, uh, George especially, had a tremendous connection. I never know where he got it from, but uh, I was able to find it. George had some of the greatest wrestlers in the history of the sport here in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, and then he eventually turned his operation over to John Pizzano. And, uh, and, uh, and he's thinking of John Pizzano, he's got the Pizzano here. We have one of the Pizzano fans here from here, uh, Joe. Where are you Hey, Joe Pizzano here. One of the Pizzano fans. Joe 
my grandfather, great guy. Uh, when I was getting involved in the territory and trying to buy the business from him, he took me in his old town with uh, the Tennessee River and, and uh, we talked for me. And uh, it turned out to be a good deal for John and it turned out to be a great deal for me as well, uh, getting involved and getting Southeast in here. So uh, my second contact, uh, you know, I had a lot of contacts uh, with East Tennessee Wrestling. As a, as a four-year-old, I was born in Dyersburg, Tennessee, on the other side of the state. And as a four-year-old, uh, we moved to Kingsport, Tennessee. And my dad was sent there by my grandfather, Roy, who had who was running everything in the South. And uh, he sent my dad to Kingsport, and he told him to go handle that territory. Dad stayed there for just a couple of years. I don't remember much of that four-year-old uh, living in Kingsport, but that was my first uh, first uh, first uh, contact with this part of the country. And then my second contact, man, it it, uh, it happened later on. Uh, it happened when I was a senior in high school. And uh, Park Cliff High School, Atlanta, Georgia. I was a basketball player. I was pretty decent. I was looking for the state. All-state basketball player, and, uh, and I got recruited by all of these young people here. This thing, a basketball coach, 1966, Tennessee, Ray Mears. Ray Mears, Ray Mears called me and got a to me at home and said, "Would you like to come down and and meet us, my team, and me? We're playing Georgia Tech in Coliseum in Atlanta." So uh, that was my second contact with uh, with this part of the country. And, my third contact, and it happened about six years later, and it happened in the dressing room in Florida. Uh, I've been there for about a year, and uh, a guy walked in the dressing room, never been there before, uh, and he was a strange looking dude. And, uh, you know, and he was even stranger once you got to know him a little bit. Uh, that was Ron Wright. Uh, so Ron Wright came into the dressing room, and he set his bag down, and uh, Everybody was looking at him like who is this? He didn't go around and introduce himself like a lot of guys do. He just, you know, set his back down, he opened it up, and he pulled out his chisel. <laughs> the very first thing, he pulled his chisel out, and he took his little file out, and he started filing his chisel. And uh, everybody's looking over there like, what is that? What's he doing? And uh, you know, we're all kind of going, who is this? And then finally, the guy started going over into the living room and saying, what is that? And he would say, when I went to him, I got the same thing. He told all of us, what is that? And he goes, that's me candle. That's my candle. Y'all going to think that before it's all over. I'm going to get a chance to use my candle. And I was like, oh, you kidding me, man? So, and a couple of years later, I ended up coming here, and he's one of the guys that's working in there. And I did get the feeling of chisel. He was right. <laughs> a lot of guys talked to chisel. And then the next connection came in 1974. I was uh, still in Florida, and I took a vacation, came to the Smoky Mountain. Uh, right where Ron Wright told me, just come here and turn up there. No, and I did. So, uh, and then I uh, went to meet uh, John Canada. I saw my first television show here. Uh, and uh, that all led to Southeastern Wrestling coming out of all that. So three months later, there was. Right on John Cazana's paddle wheel up the Tennessee River, right to this spot. One of those spots right by the stadium here. And we talked for three hours, I guess. And I went home and made a decision. That's what I wanted to do to start to come and promote it. And I ended up being probably the youngest promoter in the history of wrestling. At 26 years old, not only was a wrestler, but I was an owner of a company. So, uh, and luckily, I was surrounded by great guys, like this guy right here, and a lot of the other great talent, Ron Wright, his brother, and a couple of those. So, uh, as all sarcastic listeners know, you know, first thing you do is this territory and trying to build it up. To, to being uh, bigger than what it was. Uh, it was difficult. Uh, you know, uh, we had a TV situation, it wasn't the best. 
It was a small signal, didn't go out very far, set on top of a mountain. When it snowed, the fans had to walk up the, snow, the hill, you couldn't drive up, and the wrestlers too. You know, and, uh, and it was a small studio, we talked about that, Joe Kazan and I. It was a very small little studio. Uh, so, you know, it was, a, it was a little struggle for us in 1974, the end of 74, uh, end of 75, and on the end of 76. Uh, so, you know, about the last four months of 1976, though, the crowd really started to They really started to improve. Uh, wrestling was, was becoming bigger. Uh, we were trying to get into the Coliseum when I came here. Uh, I liked the park, the great facility, especially the amphitheater, but I wasn't so crazy about the uh, Jacobs building, small, tight, and uh, so that turned out to be a little bit of a struggle, but uh, eventually we started running in the Coliseum. So by 77, about uh, 77, we started uh, running a lot of events. From that November 1976, May of 1977, we ran uh, almost every event in the policy. Never been, never, never been run in, I don't think, previously. And uh, we were there for about six months in a row. In April of 1977, I wrestled Harley Race. We had a double world championship night. We drew the biggest crowd ever in the Knoxville Coliseum for any sports event. And 44 years later, it's still the biggest crowd ever to see a sporting event like this. So, uh, you know, we were really getting it going that same summer when we went back to the amphitheater. We drew 7,000 people in one crowd in one night. So, uh, you know, we had really kind of uh, lit wrestling up here. And uh, Southeastern Talent is just about as good, you know, as the territory itself. Uh, and he know the territory wasn't as large as most territories. In fact, it was about the smallest territory in all of wrestling. Basically, one big city, a lot of small cities around it. And, uh, but it turned out to be the best wrestling city in the world and the best, and the best small territory in the world. Uh, by 1978, TV ratings were basically through the roof, and we had the highest rating of any daytime and weekend show. Uh, we were one of the two TVs who were able to compete for Tennessee football. We were able to run on Saturdays. No one had ever done that before. And Tennessee played Notre Dame on one of those Saturdays. Can you tell them a little bit about that? Yeah, they, uh, the Balls played Notre Dame at South Bend the first time ever. And it was covered locally on television. And Ron saying that we made an impact, but we did it because in our hour, from 2 to 3 p.m. on Saturday, the best of balls and the fighting I had to do was tie in the numbers. So to us, that was a big win because we were in the ball's home and uh, the best thing to do was go to a draw. So we were the winners on that, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, obviously, if the balls weren't playing, we had four out of five people that were watching TV on Saturday afternoon who were watching wrestling. Uh, this, this part of the country was really on fire. Uh, Thirty-second spots used to sell there when we started for about the $50 a spot. We were selling for 300 a spot. And uh, it was selling for more than some prime time TV spots we gave. So, you know, we, we really uh, kind of captured the imagination of people. And, uh, you know, let's, let's have a lot to do, you know, with uh, with a, a lot of this stuff that was going on during this uh, during this time frame uh, in 1978, uh, we uh, we started to get a national prominence in Knoxville. Uh, fans around the country were hearing about what was going on in East Tennessee, and um, we even had a convention yeah. in 1978. And less had a whole lot to do with it. Um, well, that's, that was the uh, WFIA fans convention back back in the 60s and 70s. Fan clubs were big press. Not at all today, as far as I know. But back then, they go to a wrestling magazine and there was a, a whole section for the fan clubs. And so they had a convention, uh, Wrestling Fans International Association, in a different promotional city every year. So they came here in 1978 for the convention. And uh, two of the young guys that were fans at that time were the name uh, Eddie Gilbert and Jim Cornette. They were here as fans in 1978. But uh, that was, you know, that was a big deal for us. 
because they were they had been Houston, they were going to Atlanta, they had been in Detroit, they were going to be in Kansas City. So there are two major cities, and uh, of all those, Knoxville obviously isn't the largest, but it was one of the most important at that particular point in time for professional wrestling. Then, in fact, that same time period in 1978, about the time this fan convention came to town, I had been looking to start another territory. Now, obviously, fans in Knoxville knew nothing about this. There was only one Southeastern, and so far as they were concerned. And I ended up uh, buying uh, some of my family members, the Fields brothers, uh, Bobby Lee and Don Fields. You've worked there back in the day. Uh, and it was called Gulf Coast Wrestling. Uh, they had hit, they've been running the hard times. They weren't doing well. We were on fire up here. I thought, man, if we can do it here, we can do it wherever we want to go. And so uh, we went down and we started another Southeastern Wrestling. The fans here didn't even know there was even, even called the same name. And uh, we took half the crew down there. In fact, uh, we had to expand that crew dramatically because we now we had two territories all of a sudden. And so we had to have a lot more wrestling. And we were really getting wrestling from all over the world. We were getting these Tony Charles types from Europe and, uh, and Pat Barrett. And, uh, some of the greatest wrestlers in the world were coming into this area. And so that just continued to happen. And uh, then we started uh, uh, taking some of those guys south down there. Uh, Bob Armstrong, who was at that point the Georgia Jaw Jackson, wearing a mask. Bob Armstrong went down there. I went down there. David Schultz was here as a as a young guy, just as a job boy, job boy. He went there. Jerry Stubbs went there. All these guys, uh, Stubbs and Schultz, and many many others, who went down there during that same time frame. Became big stars as the time went on. And uh, so we were managed to do in '78. We managed to uh, run business and keep business very strong, especially here in Knoxville. Down there, it was totally different because. Uh, it, it was it was kind of dead. It was a dead territory when we went there. In fact, we ran a lot of towns that we had to give the money back the first two months that we were there. There wasn't enough people in the crowd to have the match. So we had to build it from there. And in a six-month period of time, that territory went from basically dead to some of the cities selling out. So, you know, we obviously have a lot of good wrestlers. We had a lot of heat. We had rides every night. Which we used to have a lot over here in Knoxville. It wasn't unusual to have rides back in the day. You don't have rides anymore in wrestling. You don't see that anymore. But uh, back in the day, we had quite a few rides. We had a lot of them down there in, uh, in that uh, in that area too. So um, you know, uh, 1978. Uh, like I said, uh, we had two companies going, and uh, things were things were uh, ended up doing pretty well. Uh, and as time went on in, in the late 1978, uh, my brother had been booking with me here, and I fell back in a lot of stuff yet. We kind of worked together doing the booking in the 70s. And, uh, and, uh, and my, the Memphis Territory, on you know, the far side of the state, was run by my father, Buddy Fuller, and uh, Jerry Jarrett. And they got into a bit of trouble. They needed some help. So uh, they called me, and uh, so I told Rob, said, uh, you're going to, you need to go to Memphis and help them out. Go over there. They wanted him to come book, for one thing, because he was a pretty darn good booker. And then I told him, take with you when you go to Montgomery Stomper, toward Tanaka, Mr. Fuji, and Jimmy Golden. I mean, I started running off this major talent. I said, take it with you when you go. And uh, so we had we had such good, tremendous talent during this time frame uh, uh, to replace those guys. We brought in the great Malenko, we brought in Kevin Sullivan, we brought in Dean Ho from Hawaii, we brought in Ken Lucas, who's a, a tremendous talent, all over the country, everywhere in the world. And, uh, you know, so what we were doing is we were providing talent to Memphis, we had a, a crew in, in Florida, out of Pensacola, and we had Knoxville itself, and uh, Knoxville was just doing big, big business at the same time. And uh, it was about that, uh, you know, and then 1979, once I came back, uh, I was down there in Florida basically for almost a year, coming up here working on Friday nights, flying back down there and working, 
during the week. Uh, Bob Armstrong doing the same thing with me. We were working both territories back and forth. And then uh, in 1979, I came back home. Uh, and uh, things started to take off down there in the Gulf Coast. Uh, we had some guys like uh, uh, Austin Ike went down in 1978 to Southeastern New Mexico. Ox Baker was there. Hulk Hogan got his start. Uh, that, we started Hulk Hogan and uh, he turned into be a big star. Brutus uh, the Barber Beefcake, then that same crew. Uh, he, he went on to big fame. Uh, Honky Top Man, Wayne Ferris, he was in that crew down there. Tremendous talent in both territories uh, for that time frame. And uh, so, you know, uh, then, I, then I made, made a big mistake in 1979. Uh, I, I was tired. I'd been on the road a lot, back and forth, uh, working uh, probably uh, 300 and probably 380 pounds a year uh, because you had the TV, right? By the time you worked the TV, about 380 shows a year and flying back and forth. And uh, so I didn't want to book here, and I hired. Hired a guy to come in and vote for me. Had a tremendous group of talent here. Been here for a long time. Ronnie Garvin was here, a big star. Uh, Bob Wharton Jr., big star for many years. Both those guys came about 1967, 76, 77. Uh, and, uh, you know, had a really great group going there. And uh, I hired the wrong guy to look at the territory. And uh, I didn't know his history. And Ruth and I had been friends. In fact, we had worked uh, Florida. We worked Florida together, and, uh, and we, we spent a lot of time in the snake pit down there. And uh, if you listen to that chance, you're aware of what that is. Uh, so we had, we, we had done a whole lot of that together. And I thought, uh, you know, I knew him, but I really didn't know him. And uh, ended up in 1979, we ended up having a war. Uh, and a pretty big, pretty big war, actually. Uh, you know, and then, for me, it was the worst, worst year of my thrashing career. You know, I, had, I thought I had a lot of friends that, that would never do something like that to me, and, uh, and I found out that, that, uh, that I was wrong about that. But, and it was a good lesson for me. Uh, and uh, I, I took it and I, and I used it to, to my benefit. I grew from it, from that experience. But uh, so in 1979, fall of 79, uh, for six months, we had two wrestling organizations here, All-Star, Southeastern. Uh, we were competing with each other. These wrestling fans experienced what very few experienced around the country, uh, awards in uh, two territories trying to crank up in the same area. And uh, traditionally, and it happened here, it kills the territory. And that's basically what happened to us here. They couldn't make enough money. It split the audience. They couldn't make enough money to survive. Southeastern wasn't able to survive. Not to the extent I wanted to. And we'd had so many good years that I decided I wanted to sell it. I didn't want to be here to see it die. And, uh, so I sold it to Jim Barnett and Fred Ward, promoters out of Georgia. And those two promoters came in here. Uh, Barnett knew uh, less. Uh, in fact, so that's where that's where that's actually his, that's where he got his name was from Jim Barnett. And I remember Jim telling me, I was, you know, I was I was thinking about taking the list south with me, and uh, and he said, I'm not about because last actually is your business. He's the face of wrestling, you know. And I said, Well, yeah, you're right about that. You know, a lot of respect he is, but anyway, uh, that stayed here, '79. And, uh, and tell us a little bit about what that was like. This uh, you and then you went through two 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 different promotions. Yes. Yeah. 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 When uh, Jim, I, the name Patrick came from uh, Jim Barnett. My real last name was Malik. It's Irish, uh, but everyone mispronounced it. Malady, Malody, Matty, anything, right? And so Jim got tired of his ring announcers mispronouncing my name. So one of his helpers came to dress me one day. I'd been with her about two months at the time. He said, uh, the old man wants to change your name. The last Saturday, is that all right? At the time, I just wanted to wrestle. I didn't care if they called me Smith, Jones. It didn't matter to me. So I became less Saturday and been less Saturday ever since. But Barnett, uh, Barnett was a, a hell of a man at work. He, he drew big money everywhere that he went. And he figured that if you rebuild this, 
But as Ron said, with two promotions, they split the fan base. Some of the guys that left us and went with them obviously took fans. So you're not in a huge metropolitan area, so there's not that many dollars and cents to be had. And so things weren't going to work just as, you know, just uh, completely. One of the things that the reason I ended up going to, uh, to Florida with Ron for a while is one of Jim's helpers, students actually, uh, decided he wanted to change the format of our TV here. And I made the, the statement that I didn't see the reason, and we went back and forth. And, and we, as Ron just mentioned, the numbers were great. The station was happy, and I saw no reason to change it. The television wasn't a problem. It was a split between the talents. And uh, so anyway, uh, he went to Jim and said, let's let TV belong to him, which was the wrong thing to say. <laughs> because I didn't say that to start with. But anyway, we're going to argue about it. So we parted company. And I went to Florida for a while and worked with uh, Charlie Platt, who was uh, handling the TV for uh, Ron and Dover at the time, and helped out with the tickets and, and one thing and another. And then Barnett uh, sold to Jim Crockett, <coughs> like Jack Mulligan and Rick Flair. And Flair called me and said, we can stay on Channel 10 if they would like you to come back and come so they had a good uh, rapport with you. So we worked it out and let's get back to Knoxville and uh, worked with the Crockett uh, organization. And they ran into the same stone wall that Ron ran into, that Barnett ran into. And we brought good talent in then too. I mean, we're talking about national stars. And uh, it just wasn't going to fly. And instead of selling it, they just finally closed the door. And uh, so over that period, I started freelancing and, and was still living here and that worked for smaller promotions in different places and my fingers in the pie, but wrestling itself had been built so big in the mid-70s and by early 80s, it was, it just wasn't there, you know, and it, it actually, the, getting a break here, they needed a break and that was what happened. So basically, uh, we, we went back, uh, that's down there with the uh, business lit up down there, just like it did here, actually. You know, uh, uh, it just all the towns started selling out. We had tremendous out. Uh, we had a wonderful situation here. This is a beautiful part of the country to live in. It's got some of the best lakes in the world, and uh, there wasn't a restaurant in the crew that didn't have a boat. And they were all out on Mars, and they're all out on some lake all the time. It was where people wanted to come, and where they wanted to be as a restaurant. And when I went to Pensacola, I found that I had another gym there because it had the Gulf and it had beautiful water and you had the beach. So, you know, I mean, we started to become the same guy. So well, when we left here and went down there, I took the Mongolian Stomper with us. Uh, I took uh, Joseph Duke, came back from Canada and started in the, down there in that territory. A lot of the same guys that had been big stars here came down to Pensacola. Uh, Pensacola just grew to Madison, uh, 79, 80, 81, 82. Uh, it was really, really doing tremendous business. Uh, then uh, Vince McMahon Jr. started uh, to hit the war, the real war, the war that's going to change wrestling for everybody. It got started about that time frame. And uh, Jim and he, he was coming in, Vince was coming in to, to everybody's cities, and uh, everybody was having to deal with it. It was the very beginning stages of it. Uh, so we were down there with Southeastern, and I thought, man, we need to have something bigger. We need to have a bigger name for our company. At about the same time, uh, wrestling died. It, it, it ran here pretty, pretty good until about in 19, around 1983. Uh, and then it totally died here. Once Mulligan and uh, and uh, Flair and, and that group uh, went to, they, they died. Uh, wrestling died here for two years. Uh, so we're doing great down there. Uh, I got a friend here named Bob Fogel, and he worked actually with Jim Barnett in that organization, helping Jim. And uh, Bob Fogel turns out to be he ran all the buildings in this entire city. He ended up coming back after our hockey years when I was in hockey with him. 
uh, he came back here and took over the Coliseum. All the buildings in this entire area, the park, the park everything was under control of Bob Hope. But in 1985, this before he got that job, uh, he called me and he said, Ron, I think we could get you back on TV on Channel 6, WAT, and Knoxville. And uh, he said, I know you got great talent. And uh, so about the same time, I got ready to try to come back here because everybody had died. Nobody could draw here in Knoxville. Uh, I got the idea of expanding the name of my territory in order to compete with McMahon. Uh, and I knew if we went back to Knoxville, we were going to run all the towns around Knoxville. We would basically be running everything from the Ohio River to the Gulf of Mexico. So we named the company Continental. We quit producing television in the studio in Dublin, Alabama. And we went to the auditorium in Birmingham, Alabama. And that was about uh, 1985, 86. And uh, about that time, this guy came along. Know, and uh, came uh, out of Houston, Texas, and, uh, and the first night he showed up in TV in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, I think, uh, well, I'm going to let you explain kind of what you what you expected. Well, I, I think the cool thing to me is like everybody here tonight knows about the old school ways, and I, I got to tell you, I don't think it compares to anything like today. You like what you like, but at that time, what you saw on TV was just an extension of what was happening back in the back. And I've always thought attitude is the most important thing about wrestling and anything you do. And I walk in the locker room and talk about wrestling, you know, like, well, association, Continental Championship Wrestling, CCW, I'm sorry. And Brad Armstrong's the guy that got me in. And Brad Armstrong, if you guys got to see him during any time in Knoxville, he wrestled here a lot. The Armstrong were kings here. But what a hell of an attitude, what a hell of a backstage it was. You go back, everybody was having a blast, everybody was talking to each other, uh, had the energy up, and went out to perform in front of real wrestling fans. Like wrestling fans who got involved in it and passionate about what's happening in the ring, not necessarily throwing a beach ball around. You know, it was really cool for us. And when I got to Continental, when I got to Birmingham that night, I wrestled there a couple times before, but now I'm full time with the crew. And, and a lot of us are introverts when we start this, but we can be whoever we want to bring. But I'm an introvert wherever I go. And I walked in, I knew a few people, but I never met Ron, never met Robert, Jim Golden, some of these guys who were on the crew, some of the top guys. They were, they made me feel like one of them. And that was cool. When you got to go out for here in Knoxville, especially, this is a great building, it's still standing. Coliseum is a great atmosphere for wrestling. Put the lights down low, but you used to be able to smoke in there by the end of the night, you'd be smoking lights. <laughs> oh, yeah! It's a great atmosphere for wrestling. But you had people who believed it, man. I love the shirt. The chisel, you can talk about the chisel, Ron, right there. There it is. Yeah. Yes. That's exactly right. I'm not sure that's the only really hardcore wrestling fans who know that. Only people who love the right brothers who know that. Find out what they were about, what it was about. Chill Howie Park, I don't care what you say. That was a great atmosphere. That was a hell of an atmosphere with the ring light hanging over at night and you see Ron Wright take his chip off, blood whatever. You can't deny that wasn't real. You cannot tell me that wasn't real, and that's what made people wrestling fans back then. So God man, this is so cool because I remember walking into these guys, and these guys have a long history. The Welsh family is known throughout, I mean, the start of professionalism, the last century. And then just reading the history, listening to the history, what, oh, what's happening up to this time? And up to the time I came. Man, I, I was so involved. We love wrestling. I still do. But you have that passion to go in and be around like-minded people who love going out there and performing. Doesn't matter what the bump is, doesn't matter what your spot is. Matters that you got to go out and do it. And people appreciate it. So that was my first experience in Birmingham instead of the Continental Wrestling. Of course, Brad was there, Jerry Stubbs was there. Man, Pensacola, we lived on the beach. How do you beat that? You can't. So it was, it was a really good vibe all the way around. I don't think I've ever been anywhere that I've had, that I've had a bad time, but this is where I had the best time. 
because it was great. Everything kind of fell in place and I got opportunities that I wouldn't have had if I didn't go. So yeah, I'm really happy. And I, got, I bet my future wife, how about that? So, <laughs> so basically, uh, we're about to 1985. Uh, we have another company, a new company called Continental Championship Wrestling. Uh, we're going to go back to Knoxville. Two years. We knew the history. We knew that it had been dead since 1983. Everybody had come and tried. Nobody could put anybody in any building. So we sat down and I talked to Bob Armstrong, one of my partners down there, and my brother and I, and Gordon, uh, we all sat and said, we won't go home. We want to go back to Knoxville. We, they may still want us. They may still remember us. And so that's exactly what we did in 85. Is, uh, and they, I don't remember, it was the 200th year of the state or something. And there were signs when you drive into Tennessee, it said, uh, welcome to homecoming. 1985 was a year of homecoming. So we called that first event the homecoming. And uh, we went back with, uh, with the Montgomery Stalker worked on that car. Uh, the Armstrongs worked on that car. Oh, it was a tremendous car. Uh, actually, I've got to find you guys. It's so good a car. I just, uh, I don't want to leave anybody out. Uh, Rob was on that car, Jimmy Golden was on that car, Tony Charles, Mongolian Stomp, Ron and Don Wright. Uh, Ron and Don both came back on that tonight. Jerry Stubb, who had been Mr. Olympia, he'd already gone into another phase, and uh, was a big star, either the Stubbs or Olympia. Don Carson was on that car. And then uh, we brought some newcomers on that car. One of them, right here, Dr. Tom, is first. <laughs> Brad Armstrong was Brad's first time in Knoxville. Brad was a tremendous worker. He went crazy. One of the uh, best ever. Uh, Arn Anderson was on that card. Never been here. Marty he Lundy. went Marty Lundy. He went crazy. He, uh, and so, uh, and then we had a uh, dirty white boy was on that card. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lord something that nobody ever seen was on that card. We went into the Coliseum expecting to draw maybe 2,000. We sold out. Uh, it was truly a homecoming. We came back to Knoxville, and it was just like we never left. I mean, it was amazing. Every time we came, we sold out. And uh, we, the fans were still here. They still loved it. Uh, <coughs> truly amazing atmosphere. But during that same time frame, we, we had expanded. We were on in the Middle East. Our television continental was on in Qatar and Saudi Arabia and the Arab Emirates. We had expanded and were sending shows overseas. Uh, we had become a pretty big company, one of the biggest, maybe the maybe top five in the country at that point. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, when we got to it, an angle, pretty close to this first time that we came back, we had done an angle uh, that this guy right here uh, has uh, all the credit for, man. Uh, and uh, we did an angle with Dr. Tom and with Dirty White Boy. And uh, I think it might have been on one of these first shows when we came back. And uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about, uh, you know, you've already just pretty well described Southeastern. Uh, I'm sure you've got uh, uh, Sure. I mean, you need, we, the Dirty White Boy and I have been working a couple of matches, and you needed something to spice it up. And I've seen at one time, uh, I know you guys know Nick Cochran, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I saw Nick as a young baby face one time get in the ring, and the guy named the Hangman put the noose around his neck and just whipped it all around the ring. I thought that was one of the most vicious things I've ever seen. So, uh, and he came up with this idea you can't do it today. It's just, you can't. Dirty white girl. can't. Well, we came up with the plan was a dirty white girl would come up to the end of the the gorgeous soul with a black eye. Like he had just knocked the hell out of her. And this is, <laughs> I fell to see the humor, guys. <laughs> but but she tried to coax me out. She comes out, finally come out, and and the deal was Tony's just gonna nail me from behind and hang me. That interview said, but he got a little more. Um, Carried away in the sense that they said, No, we need something a little bit more. 
And uh, so I said, all right, what if he puts my hand on my back and handcuffs me and then pulls me from the interview stand and hangs me from the center of the ring? I think even in Alabama, that's still illegal. <laughs> but but the, the crazy thing about it is back then, nobody rehearsed. Nobody went over stuff. You didn't do that stuff. You just talked about it. And then you went out and did it. And if you've ever had a noose around your neck, you'll find out that you don't have to pull it to tighten it. You just, it tightens on its own as you pull it. And there's no way I can tell him that I've got my hands behind my back and I'm, it's going to take a while to get where we need to be, so I'm holding my breath as much as I can. But that was wrestling back then. That was continental. That was southeastern. That was, that was wrestling. I don't care what you say. I just wrestled. Good stuff. Brilliant. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, you just about died. Well, yeah, but you know, yeah. <laughs> One more thing, just to get inside here. Back in the back, the, the, the shot was going to be where I'm hanging and something in my throat ruptured and I was supposed to have blood coming down my mouth. Randy Coffey, one of the Moondogs, great guy, told me how to do this. We had to get a condom. Oh, yeah. Yes, we had to get a condom. Not Liberty. Thank you. It was just a but it was bad enough. It was bad enough. He drew blood from my arm, put it in this condom, and then just tied it up, and we kept it in the water in the locker room. But what he failed to do was tie it tight enough. And those condoms are supposed to be strong for a reason. I couldn't bite through it with my teeth. That's sad to admit, but it's true. And the idea was Steve Armstrong was supposed to have something to pierce the condom so we would still get the blood coming down my, my mouth. And when Steve hit it, he almost threw up because the blood just stunk so bad. Was, but, yes, that, that was what we went to. We wanted real blood. We wouldn't be caught dead in a blood capsule. <laughs> so anyway, that, that got a little up uh, about hand. But yeah, it was, it was the angle. It was the Wild West. And it was like people crying and screaming. So it was very, it was very, very cool. That was what, uh, that was what we were working for back then. And the crowd was there, and you appreciated every minute of it, right? Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. When you're going to do something like that, I mean, it, it is truly amazing. It was one of the great parts about being a wrestler. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and sometimes the best things, the unexpected things were the best things. Yes. You know, and uh, you never really knew uh, where it was going to go. So basically, in, uh, from 85 to 87 in the history, we're going through Knoxville, East Tennessee's history. Uh, East Tennessee is just like Knoxville. Uh, Johnson City and Kingsport, the Tri-City, they're selling out their buildings. Uh, whenever Knoxville was selling out, they were doing just as well in the other territory, the other parts of the territory as well. So in 85 to 87, uh, we were just kicked butt for the Continental. And then uh, in uh, 1987, uh, I got ready to kind of get out. I've been in it for quite a while. But, uh, and it's pretty stressful owning the company and uh, trying to keep things rolling. And so uh, I sold out uh, in Southeast and uh, came back uh, here in early 1988. Uh, I did not sell, Knoxville was not traditionally a part of Southeastern wrestling in Pensacola. So we came back and opened up here with USA Wrestling. And on this, as people out there are watching this right now on YouTube, uh, that's what you're seeing now, is those shows from 1988, in which uh, uh, the same Armstrong, Bob, not Brad, but Scott, another son, uh, and uh, a lot of the same crew went to Philly. Some of the same people are still wrestling in 1988. Uh, some places are closed at this point. Uh, Vince has already put some out of business. Uh, we're still doing fairly well here. Uh, we had a great little company there. I sold that company in uh, 1988, in the summer of 1988, to the same guy who bought Southeast. He was a owner of a television station. 
Hey, David Woods, out of Montgomery, Alabama. He bought Continental, he bought the, and he bought the USA Wrestling, and, uh, and I went on to hockey. But uh, Knoxville still kept going. Knoxville still continued to do what Knoxville had done. Uh, basically, it started another die-off uh, after uh, Continental closed down, 1988, uh, uh, early 89, uh, they were gone. Uh, so then it sat here for a while, and then along came one of the one of the most intelligent guys in the wrestling business, a tremendous mind uh, that came and had an idea. He said, "Wow, that territory was one of the greatest. Uh, can I go back and, and revive it?" And uh, along came Jim Cornette to the Montana Smoking Conference. Now we're talking about a time frame here where almost everybody else in the country is gone. But uh, Jim says, I'm going to do it, in spite of things. I'm going to have my little niche here. And uh, Jim came and started uh, his company. Uh, Les got involved. He has done a lot of stuff. I'll let and Tommy's going to be involved. And tell uh, us a little bit about that. Well, I'm going to back up a little bit first and mention that I first wrestled here for John Cusan in 1968. At that point, we had no television. And Johnny got TV in 69, and that's where we got to Red Hot and through big houses here for him. But over the years, I've worked for five different promotions here as a wrestler or a television producer and host. Um, but to work with Jim Cornette, I, I'll say it here, I've said it, I'll say it tomorrow, I'll say it the day I die. If you're talking about the greatest creative mind in wrestling and you don't include Jim Cornette, then you're not talking about it. Because that's one of the most fertile minds still above ground. And don't pay attention to the way Jimmy presents his comments. Listen to the comment, because nine times out of ten, he is dead on right. Here, end story. But working for Jim, you know, Jimmy, as I mentioned earlier, was one of the fans here in 1978 at the fan club convention. In fact, he won for best action photo by a fan. I used to tease him about that and say, treat me right, I'm going to tell everybody that you're not the damn jackass you act like. But you're really. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, Jimmy got created and, and did a hell of a job in bringing everything back. And uh, it was wrestling. It was what the people in this area were buying and had been buying and just hadn't seen it in a while. And uh, it was so much fun. Well, Jim Ross came in and worked with us for a while. And I was mentioning to uh, one of the guys earlier tonight that we did the Night of Legends, if you've seen that show. And uh, it's the first time Jim and I had worked with it. And uh, the first break, uh, Terry Falk came up and said, man, I'm listening, watching the monitor back here, and, and uh, you guys are calling the wrestling match the way it should be called. He said, how long have you and Jim worked together? And I looked for a watch, I said, mm, about an hour and a half. <laughs> but that's, if he was that easy, Jim was, was that easy to work with. I've been blessed in this territory to work with Jim Ross, uh, Lance Russell, Bob Cobb, uh, all my three of the very best ever, and I always had the opportunity to work for him solely, but not here. So if that's not the Mount Rushmore uh, wrestling announcers, I don't know who where the hell they are. But Smokey, was a revival of more of what we were talking about from the 70s and, and the early 80s. And I think that's what the fans were buying. And there's still places in this country that will buy it. And, and I think what we're seeing here tonight is a tribute to that. The fact that good professional wrestling uh, was still set. And I, I believe that to this day. But, but Smokey was uh, maybe the last of the territories as such. And we had a health crew then too. Uh, some of the best workers in the, in fact, if you sat down here and made a list, starting, you know, realize some of the <coughs> guys from Madison Square Gardens, the Cal Palace in San Francisco, uh, the Sportatorium in Dallas, I don't care where, the top wrestling venues in this country, somebody from there, or a number of guys from there have been through here for one of these promotions and the history of wrestling in Knoxville is just amazing. And, uh, you know, it's so much fun to 
go back and relive it. And it's so much fun to be with you guys here to relive it. And I'm going to tell Tom my teeth were sharp enough to cut through that damn <laughs> <laughs> Because I thought I was 90, uh, 63 the first time I pulled that stud. It worked. <laughs> I guess I sharpened my teeth. But I don't know. <laughs> anyway, the work with Jimmy Cornette was a great group. It really was. And a lot of good talent. And Dr. Tom being one of those guys. And, uh, you know, well, I want to say, too, what's sitting here between the three of us has got to be at least 150 years of professional wrestling experience at a very high level. And uh, 61 years for me and, and counting, 51 for him and counting. Tommy, how many? Uh, 42. 42? Youngster. The young guy. Junior? Yeah, tell me a little bit uh, about you and what you did, Tommy. Well, once again, I'm in Memphis, Tennessee, doing really nothing. Uh, I get a call from Jim Cornette asking if I'd like to be a spot or have a spot in a tag team with Stan Lane. It made perfect sense. So Jim Cornette is one of the smartest guys in the business. He's very opinionated. He's got every right to have his opinion, as we all do. But Smoky Mountain was the last of the territories where people would get passionate about it. You could really. Well, that's what saying, or Ron was saying we had riots every night. When you had genuine heat like Jim Cornette, you had people who actually wanted to reach out, either pull his eye out, smack him in the head, whatever it may be. I mean, we we would go to places, and some of these, these places would be jam-packed, and people would try and converge on us as we to the back. And Jimmy had his bracket, and if you guys know Jim Cornette, he doesn't mind swinging it. And they started coming down on us, and all of a sudden, Jimmy takes his racket and lays this guy wide open across his head. <laughs> we go back and run back to the room, and Jimmy runs back to the locker, or goes back to the showers, and pulls his knee up, puts his knee on a chair, pulls it up, takes his tennis racket, and goes bam, hits himself right in the shin. Because the cops come in and say, hey, that wasn't even the guy that hit you. He goes, yeah, look, they hit me, look. <laughs> Uh, the 
one of Knoxville's, one of Knoxville's county mayor, uh, Glenn Jacobs. So Glenn Jacobs came, a former WWE star, uh, who was and a lot of other, a lot of other companies. Learned a lot here with Smokey. There you go. It's green, it's green. Another guy that was involved with all these. The, the whole thing about this dead cast, I wanted just to finish here by saying, this is one of the most tremendous wrestling areas of the world for wrestling. It has been extremely successful over a lot of years. Uh, it has lasted longer probably than any of the other territories. Uh, it has really been a great, phenomenal place. And uh, we've got a great group here tonight. Most of y'all are from this area. And uh, just really, really appreciate you coming here and uh, giving us the opportunity to uh, give you the history of the East Tennessee, Knoxville Wrestling East Tennessee. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.